Well, this close to Hanukkah, um, as we often do, <coughs> we'd like to um, have a session with regards to matters of Hanukkah, Habadinu Latova, with eight days, which is the longest as the Chagim get, certainly uh, Kedai to have um, things to contemplate and to mull over. And I'd like to begin, as we uh, generally do, with a matter of halacha or minhag that relates to Hanukkah. And the topic that I wanted to speak about this evening is the question of electric menorahs, which is <coughs> a very uh, interesting topic, uh, not what most people think of when they use the term current events, but nonetheless uh, a great deal of the nature of the mitzvah of Hanukkah will come out through this discussion. And indeed, there are uh, three or four separate discussion points which will further enhance our knowledge of the mitzvah of Ner Hanukkah. <coughs> and we'll begin at the beginning. After all, the most simplest thing we can say about the mitzvah of Hanukkah lights is that they need to be an air. The nusach of the bracha the text of the bracha is lahad likner shochanukah. And the text of the bracha, as is often the case, tells us a great deal about the, the basic framework of the mitzvah. Which means, in, in order <coughs> to work for a, a Hanukkahite, it would need to answer to the definition of ner. After all, if you would be able to obtain, uh, let's say, fluorescent uh, stickers in the shape of uh, flames and they would glow and they would be highly visible and they, one would not fulfill the mitzvah with them because visibility is one thing that's not called a nair so a nair we assume is an iteration of fire and that now is the question <coughs> is an electric light bulb, is it considered to be ash? Is it considered to be fire? Would it be called a nair um, in that respect? And interestingly, in this regard, science uh, as we use it, as we apply it, has moved on and perhaps has moved on not in the direction of using an electric menorah for Hanukkah, by which I mean the original light bulbs were filament light bulbs. And what a filament is as a result of the electric charge which goes through it, high charge, very small uh, area, it's tightly uh, wound, very fine. <coughs> so it, it, it generates heat and heats it to such a degree that it begins to glow and emit light. The halacha has dealt with just such a situation, <coughs> at least in Hilcha Shabbos. If a person were to take a piece of metal, says the Rambam, and put it in fire until the metal is white hot and glows, the, the metal itself is considered to be the product of an act of kindling, and he would be chayev on Shabbos, at least as a tolder of kindling. And therefore, since the filament is metal and it's heated to the degree that it, uh, that it glows and emits light, perhaps that could be considered ash, glowing hot metal, could be considered <coughs> ish, 
And indeed, in a somewhat different context, it is related that there were a certain gedolim, famous among them, Rabbi Chaim Zagurjensky of Vilna. It is said that in Havdalah, he made a point of making the bracha Borei Me'orei Ha'esh over an electric light bulb in order to emphasize that, that to, to, to switch on that bulb would be the uh, Torah Melacha of, uh, of Havara, of kindling a fire. So the filament light bulb, there's room to say heated to the extent that it glows, could be considered fire. However, as we know, in more recent times, the light bulbs that are in vogue are not filament light bulbs. They still, they're still around, but it's much more LED. It's much more what's called cold light. The current causes the whatever gases or materials in there uh, to grow and emit, uh, to glow and emit light. But it's not a product of heat. I mean, you can hold on to the, the, to the light bulb and it's, uh, it might warm up a little bit, but certainly it's not the heat that makes it glow, which, which means presumably that type of light bulb, which people use nowadays, and it's for a reason that it's, it doesn't heat up. It's in order to save electricity. That's, that's, that's the great chokhmah, uh, which is good for your light bulbs, not good for your menorah, because it now has nothing to do with fire. And so... Based on this discussion so far, it would emerge that perhaps a filament light bulb, which is heated till it glows, could be considered ash, but the more uh, gas fluorescent uh, and LED, um, which are much more in vogue, they would not, not so. But to come back to the fluorescent light bulb, uh, pardon me, the, the filament light bulb itself, <coughs> as if to say, well, that's fire, that glows till it's red, till it's red hot or white hot, that emits light. Is it, is it uh, immediately straightforward that it is acceptable? Not so. One of the first gedolim to talk about the question of an electric menorah was Shlomo Zabon Orbach, and he did so when he was yet in his 20s. He wrote a sefer, and it was one of the, one of the, the first treatises of its kind of electricity. It's called Me'orei Eish, and it has Haskamas from Rav Kook and from Rav Chaim and and so on. And he discusses electricity and, and uh, all of its uh, manifestations with regards to halacha. <coughs> and Rishlam Azaman raises another point. In addition to the requirement that the menorah be a nair, there is another requirement, and that is, why do we like the menorah? Zecher lemikdash. So in addition to answering to the definition of what would be called fire, it also needs, perhaps, to be critically comparable to the way the menorah was lit in the Beis HaMikdash. And how was the menorah lit in the Beis HaMikdash? Well, two components. A wick that drew off fuel, that consumes fuel. That's how it, that's how it glows. An electric light bulb, and again, filaments back in the day, is just, in a sense, the wick. It's just the thing that glows. But you don't have the fuel that's being consumed, not in the light bulb. It's true, of course, fuel needs to be consumed to produce the electricity. That's sometimes something we, we uh, tend to forget. We focus on the electricity. Altis takel, the light bulb, but how did it get there? 
But that's already the history of how the, 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 uh, the electricity is there. But at that point, it's an electric charge. All you have is the equivalent of the filament, is of the wick. And maybe that's not Zecher le Mikdash. In the base of Mikdash, there was wick and fuel. Here, it's just the wick that glows. It would be the equivalent of finding a, a stick that you can set on fire for half an hour with, with, with nothing other than the entity itself burning. Maybe that's not okay. It is true, says Shlomo Zalman, as we know, that although ideally one uses oil, olive oil, but you can use candles, the candles are also not exactly like the menorah. And, and still they're okay. So that could be for one of two reasons. If we need Zecher Lemigdash, why is a candle acceptable? One could conclude in one of two directions. Either A, that ultimately, although desired, Zecher Lemigdash is not absolutely necessary, and therefore a candle doesn't have it, but Bidyevet, you don't need it. Or alternatively, perhaps you always need Zecher Lemigdash. The reason why a candle is acceptable is because you do have a wick with the fuel. It's just the fuel is not a liquid that the, that the wick is dipped into. It's solidified around it. But at the end of the day, you have those two components. <clears throat> so it's a very uh, interesting way of understanding or asking the question why candles are acceptable. Either A, again, you don't have Zecher le Migdash, but you don't necessarily need it, critically. Or B, you do need it, and you have it with the, with the, the, the wax that's around the wick. What difference would that make? Says of Shlomo Zalman, the reason why a candle is acceptable would determine whether an electric light bulb is acceptable. If we say <coughs> that what we learned from a candle is that if necessary, you can dispense with Zecher Lemigdash and still fulfill the mitzvah just like a candle does, well then an electric light bulb also, a filament, would be acceptable. But if the reason why a candle works for the mitzvah is because you always need Zechel Mikdash, but you have it. The wax around the, solidified around the wick is the fuel. Well, in an electric light bulb, you don't have that, and therefore it wouldn't be okay. <coughs> What's very interesting is the closest we could get to a, a halachic precedent in the responsa is a tshuva of the Beis Yitzhak. The Beis Yitzhak, or Yitzhak Shmelkes of Lvov, one of the great poskim of Poland, in the 1800s, if I'm not mistaken, Rav Meir Shapira traveled to, to the Beis Yitzhak to get smicha from him. And the Beis Yitzhak was asked from someone who had an arrangement whereby all he lit was the oil. The, if you set fire to the oil, the oil itself would burn, and there was enough oil to burn for, for half an hour. Of course, it's just oil. There's no wick. Is that acceptable? And the Beis Yitzchak said, it is acceptable. So perhaps, as of Shlomo Zalman, we could use this as a precedent, again, from the responsa literature, to ascertain that, if necessary, you don't need both components, because there, there's no wick. And the Beis Yitzchak said, it's okay. But Shlomo Zalman responds to this and says, you cannot compare these two components to each other, the oil and the wick. They're both equally part of the menorah, but one of them was more equal than the other because the, the miracle was with the oil. 
So as much as they're both partners in the menorah, I think we could, if we could use the terminology, the oil is the senior partner. The wick is the junior partner. So if you see a responsa which says that just oil by itself is okay, all you've seen is that the main entity that we're commemorating is okay, what we're calling the senior partner. You could not infer from there that if you only had the junior partner, just the wick, like the filament and the light bulb, <coughs> that it would be equally okay. And <coughs> that is the second element of the discussion. Zecher Lemigdash does... How does a light bulb stand with regard to Zecher Lemigdash? A third point, the third of the four points, that is mentioned by Ritzvi Pesach Frank in his Chuvas, Hartsvi, and also in a Sefer on the Chanukah, Mikroi Kodesh, well, on the Moadim, Mikroi Kodesh, in the Chanukah volume. We know that the Chanukah lights need to be lit for a certain amount of time. What's called an adshetichle regel minashuk until the, the leg leaves the marketplace, until people leave work uh, to go home, which in the times of the Gomorrah and until relatively recently uh, was, is rated as half an hour after nightfall. Of course, nowadays people never leave work to go home, so it's a difficult metric. But uh, traditionally, tichle regel minashuk is half an hour after nightfall, and and there has to be enough fuel in the menorah for that. The Rosh makes a very important assertion, and that is not only does the light need to keep going for ha- until half an hour after nightfall, but the fuel to keep it going needs to be present at the time when you light. So if at the time that you lit your, your oil lamp, you had, for argument's sake, five minutes worth of oil, but then three minutes later, you added another hour's worth. It's not acceptable. The whole fuel source needs to be there, present at the time of lighting. So, says the Hartsvi, if your electricity is coming from the mains, the electricity, which, is, which let us call that the fuel for argument's sake, is being fed in to the appliance on an ongoing basis. It's not there at the time that you light. The proof being, if there were to be an electric power cut, everything would go out. There's nothing in storage. So it it is an ongoing process of being fed in. So that's the equivalent of adding in the oil after the time of lighting. And this was the reason Rayotsu Pesach Frank felt that uh, electric menorahs would be a problem. You don't have all the oil that you need, all the fuel that you need, present at the time of the lighting. What's interesting is, to that uh, question, one might be able to counter that if it's a battery-powered menorah, so then all the all the, the resources are there. Ironically, we look upon a battery as like the poor cousin of electricity. If only it could be attached to the mains, all its problems will be solved. But in this regard, no, at least it's self-contained. Whatever you, ha- whatever you have, you need. If there's a power cut, people turn to batteries because uh, it's the one thing they can rely upon in a situation like that. And maybe, maybe a battery-powered menorah would deal with that problem. The final point that I'd like to mention, and it's, it's fascinating because Rav Waldenberg in the Tzitz Eliezer, who goes through this and doesn't see any of the above to be an impediment, 
it is the most unlikely issue, the one perhaps we never would have uh, thought of, that he considers the whole thing to break down over. And again, discussing filament light bulbs, which is the only real contender. There is a halacha which states that a <coughs> Hanukkah light needs to be one wick, a single wick. If it is a multi-wicked um, flame, what's called an avuka, like I would say lahavdol, but what we make havdala on, right, which is which should be a multi-wicked flame, that is possible for Hanukkah lights. So says the Gemara. It has to be one arriving, uh, arising from a single wick. And says Ravaldenberg, in his estimation, because the way a filament light bulb works is that the coil, the filament, is wrapped so many times, coiled around, and that's really how the, the light comes out, he considers that to be a multi-wicked candle. And the light that emerges from all of it would be considered like an avuka, and it, and it so close to the end for Valderberg, that's where it breaks down. <clears throat> and so... These are some of the, dare I say, highlights of the discussion of an electric menorah. Tachlis, halacha lamaisa or hanhoga lamaisa. Uh, I don't believe there are any poskim who, who say that one is lechatchila, able to use uh, an electric light bulb. Uh, and even bidyeved, uh, it's not considered, according to most, that one would have fulfilled the mitzvah. If one were to be in a situation where where lighting an actual flame is not an option, which could be, for example, depending on the setting of someone is unfortunately in hospital and, and they, they, they don't allow uh, live flames <coughs> in the room, or if he's traveling, uh, depending on what he's traveling in, and by plane, assuming there's an obligation of Hanukkah lights for someone traveling by plane uh, through the night, they're also not so partial to uh, live flames in, um, in airplanes. And therefore, the recommendation is to take a battery-powered uh, light source and, <coughs> and, and to turn it on for half an hour. Zecher. If the mitzvah of Hanukkah is zecher Migdash, so even if you don't have the mitzvah, but at least zecher mitzvah, but one certainly would not make a bracha. And indeed, according to many poskim, even if one had no other choice but used a battery-powered uh, light from a menorah and then came into uh, possession of a match and, and lights and candles, etc., et they would light again with a bracha, because the, the, the electric, the most it can do is a zecher, but not the actual mitzvah itself. So these are some of the very interesting, and again, although the answer ultimately, not surprisingly, is no, but we gained a great deal understanding why the way that we, the things that we do use, why they are yes, and what you need. And, and, and that was really the testing ground for uh, why ultimately uh, an electric light bulb would not be good enough for a menorah. Okay, moving on to more uh, thematic aspects of, the, of Hanukkah. And of course, but staying very much within, within the menorah, which is the centerpiece uh, mitzvah-wise, it's the center object of the menorah, and it's really central to the story of Hanukkah. I mean, it's, it's not an accident that the, the mitzvah is to light the menorah. The menorah was, was the centerpiece 
of the rededication of the Beis HaMikdash, although there was a general rededication, Chanukas HaMizbeach, but particular emphasis was lit on the way they lit the menorah with the oil, with the one day and the eight days, and, and it's not surprising that this is the case, because the menorah represents the illumination of Torah. We say, Ner Mitzvah, Torah Or, and in fact, this even makes it into the Shulchan Aruch, this idea that the menorah represents the wisdom of Torah. The Gemara says, and Shulchan Aruch codifies it, that if a person wishes to grow in wisdom, harotza lahachkim, yadrim, from the expression darom, he should face south. South in what respect? <coughs> when he's davening his Shemana and most people faced east to Mizrach, so he should face south, whether he should face southeast or, or how exactly he works. But why? Because the menorah was in the southern part of the sanctuary of the Beis HaMikdash, and therefore he should turn in the direction, incline himself in the direction of, of the menorah if he wishes to attain wisdom. Needless to say, he's also encouraged to learn Torah, but as, as an act that will help him on his way, give him a bit of a boost. And as such, we know that the core contention, really, certainly which led to the confrontation on Hanukkah, was the issue of Torah. As we say, to make them forget your Torah, that's what it's all about. Greece had been in control of Israel for, for many decades before the Hanukkah story occurred. Political domination is not pleasant, but the war, says Rav Soloveitchik, was not about that. Causes Bellum. The cause for war was when they started to, to attack uh, observance of Torah, and that's when, that's when the, the Hashmanaim, etc., uh, took up arms. So, so if the point of contention between Greece and, and Israel, or the aspect of Greece that met us and Israel, is the war over Torah, so how appropriate it is that the vessel that now is the centerpiece of the celebration of our victory is the menorah, which is the symbol of Torah. As we will see, there is another dimension here. And it begins by raising a simple question, a disarmingly simple question. Here we are saying that the association of the menorah is with Torah wisdom. Everything the Beis HaMikdash, it, it, it relates to something. The, the Mizbeach is like Kahuna, and the Shulchan is like Malchus. And the menorah is Torah. There's just one problem. We happen to already have a vessel that relates to Torah. It's the Oron. It's the Holy Ark in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. I mean, it doesn't get more Torah than that. It's got the Aseris Hadibros in it. It's got the Luchos. And it has the first ever written Sefer Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu. So, so this puts us in a, in a bit of an unusual situation. Along comes the menorah and we say, well, the menorah represents Torah. We, we, it's already represented. But this is why Mephorshim say that the two vessels between them, 
The Aron, the Holy Ark, and the Menorah correspond and relate to the two areas of Torah. Torah <coughs> is the product, or has to comprise the two domains of Torah Shebechtav and Torah Shebalpeh. The written Torah, the part of Torah that's written, the part of Torah that is Balpeh, that is oral. And now, when you think of the Aron, of the Holy Ark, what does it have in it? Everything in it is Torah Shebechtav. The luchos, the tablets of stone, it doesn't get more Torah Shebechtav than that, written by Hashem himself. And the first Sefer Torah, it's all Torah Shebechtav. That's the Aron. The menorah, on the other hand, so that is Torah Shebalpeh. It's very interesting to uh, consider the Pasuk. We mentioned it in passing before. It's from Mishle, Perig Vav. Kiner mitzvah, the Torah or. Ner mitzvah. The mitzvah is a ner. Ner is a lamp. The mitzvah is a lamp. Torah or. The Torah is light. What do we refer to by talking about the mitzvah and the Torah? Aren't mitzvahs part of Torah? And why is one a lamp? And why is one light? <coughs> but as we know, the role of a lamp is to contain light, is to, is to, is to harness it in order that it be able to, to shine. It is a vessel that is dedicated to promoting light. And that <coughs> is the two areas of Torah. Mitzvah is the practical application of the mitzvahs, which we know from Torah Shabbat Peh primarily. Torah refers to the pure light of Torah, which is the written Torah, Torah Shebechtav. And what's very interesting, says Rabbi Nubachia, in his work, Kat HaKemach, in his section on Hanukkah, says Rabbi Nubachia, the two vessels are called the Aron and the Menorah. The word Aron, which we translate as Ark, which is a good translation, but in Hebrew, says Rabbi Nubachia, the word Aron comes from the word Or. Aron. Or. It's about the light of Torah, Torah or. The menorah relates to the word ner, because that is the ner mitzvah. So or and ner, light and lamp, is oron and menorah. And that is why we have two vessels in the Beis Hamikdash that relate to Torah, the two areas of Torah. What's interesting is, if we then follow this as we go through the history of the two Bate Mikdash, so we will see that <coughs> each one was the focus in a different base Mikdash, if one could use such a, a simplifying terminology. The focus in the first base Mikdash, not surprisingly, because in the first base Mikdash, the written Torah is still happening, so to speak. Torah Shebechtav, I mean the Chumash we have uh, from Moshe, but Nevi'im and Kesuvim, they are still happening. The, 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 the Nevi'im that we have, they live in the time of the, of the first Pesach Mikdash and will persist up until just the, 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 the kissing point of the beginning of the second Pesach Mikdash, which is when the last of the, Levi, of the Nevi'im are, are functioning. Which means the focus, understandably, at the, at the time of the first Pesach Mikdash, is to is on Torah Shebechtav, and that's why the focal vessel, with no doubt, 
in the first Beis HaMikdash is the Aron, because the Aron is the vessel that relates to Torah And why do we say that the Aron is the focal vessel? See how David HaMelech refers to, expresses his desire to build the Beis HaMikdash. It's a pasuk in Divri Hayamim. Aniim Livavi, it is within my heart, it is my heart's desire, Livnos Beis Menucha La'aron Bris Hashem. My, my deepest desire, says David HaMelech, is to build a resting place for the Aron, a house that will be a resting place for the Aron. That is his, his description of the Beis HaMikdash. Because the first Beis HaMikdash, it sums it all up. The centerpiece of the Beis HaMikdash is the Aron. And the whole, pl- the whole building surrounds it and is a setting for it. Needless to say, that's not true at the time of the second Beis HaMikdash. The time of the second Beis HaMikdash, the Aron isn't there. Not only is it not the center, it's not there. It's either been taken to wherever it's been taken, or if it's been buried wherever it's been buried, but it's not in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. And at that point, corresponding to the emerging focus on Torah Shebaal Peh, with the Mishnayas, and with the so on and so forth, <coughs> collecting all of the traditions and, and, and uh, more discussions, etc. So the focus becomes the menorah. And enter now Hanukkah, in the time of the second Beis HaMikdash, where the focus is the menorah. It's not just a historical coincidence. There is something else. There is a concept called Bris Torah. Hashem says, I, I, it talks about establishing a covenant with the Jewish people. Al pihadvarim ha'elek karati bris im Yisrael, says the Pasuk in Parshas Ki Sisa. <coughs> the Gemara in Gitin, Daf Samach says, makes the statement, it's Rabbi Yochanan in the Gemara, that the primary basis of the covenant of Torah between Hashem and the Jewish people is Torah Shabal Peh. And the question is, why? I mean, how, how can one say such a thing? You have Hashem's own words in the Chumash, and then you have the expositions of Torah Shabal Peh and other received halachas, and, and, and Rabbi Yochanan says, the primary covenant is Torah Shabal Peh. How, how is that so? The Maharal explains. Maharal in his Chedusha Goddess to Gitin and in the Sefer Teferis Yisrael. The concept of a bris. What is the defining characteristic of a bris? It's not just an arrangement between two sides. A bris between two sides is something that connects the two sides. The concept of bris Torah is what connects us to Torah, or what, more correctly, what connects us to Hashem through the Torah. Says Maharal, the connector is Torah Shabal Peh, or the details and the expositions and explanations of Torah Shabal Peh. Why? Because if you just have the information that we have in the written Torah, you don't yet know exactly how to do the mitzvahs. They're still distant from us. They're still abstract. 
What do tefillin look like? What does that look like? They're lacking definition. And because they're lacking definition, so we haven't fully connected with them yet. The connector is Torah Shabbat And that's why the bris, which is a connecting arrangement, is primarily Torah I think there may be room to add one more idea. After all, one could persist and ask, why does there have to be an oral law? And, and the background to the question is, as much as we need to know the details, but why did they need to be oral in nature? Why, why should they belong to a new category of Torah or a new domain of Torah? Let everything be written down, and then we'll know everything we need to know. And there are many answers to these questions. And the most straightforward answer, <coughs> which is, which is uh, given by uh, Sefer Ikrim, I believe, is that it's, it's, it's the very nature of life that it's impossible. I mean, you, cannot, you cannot cater for every single contingency. What you need to do is give principles that can then be applied. But that it's really up to, to the, the Chachamim of each generation because there's no way, I mean, we say no way, nothing's impossible, but it's not feasible, it's unwieldy. Imagine if the written Torah from the outset was as voluminous as all of the generated output through the oral Torah. No one would open it. And therefore, this is a very practical answer to the question. So many nuances and so many permutations and combinations and, and dif- different circumstances and scenarios. One, one needs the principles of Torah Shabbat to apply them. But I wonder whether one may say something else. In addition, that is to say. If, as the Maharal has told us, there is a... The, the defining characteristic of a bris is a connection between us and Hashem. Connections are formed by application. Connections are formed by investment. The things that we're connected to are the things that we invest in. If there's no investment, there is no connection. It's easy come, easy go. The difference between Torah Shebikhtav and Torah Shebapeh is a Torah that is read and received, which would be if everything is written down, laid out before us, we would have the role of receivers. But that's a passive role. But once you have Torah Shabbat so we are partners, so to speak. And, and it's application and exposition and formulation. That's what forms the bond. That's what forms the brisk connection. A covenant connection is a product of application, not just reading. Quote, unquote. And perhaps that's why it's of the essence that the, the aspect of Torah, or there should be an aspect of Torah that gives that special quality of connection that, that, that is Baal Peh. And you have Torah scholars on behalf of the Jewish people laboring and investing and applying themselves ever since. And here we are, still connected. And this will give us a, a, a deeper insight into something that's considered to be one of the great tragedies of, let's call it, the pre-Hanukkah story. Namely, the translation of Torah into Greek. What became known as the Septuaginta, the Targum Hashivim. 
Now we tend to put all of Greece together, which obviously is not correct. They split up into different uh, factions. They warred as much with each other as with anyone else. Uh, and the land of Israel was often caught in the middle, north and south. But for a time, we were belonged to the south. By south, that means the Egyptian Greeks. And Ptolemy, King Ptolemy II, he ordered that the Torah be translated into Greek. And the Gemara says it was, it was a terrible, terrible time. It was, a, it was a terrible event. The way the Medrash describes it, darkness descended into the world. It was an absolutely terrible situation to have to translate the Torah into Greek. And we, and we may well ask, why is it considered such a terrible thing? Let, let the Greeks have, have access to Torah. Is it not true that the Torah was meant to be translated into what's called 70 languages? As we entered the land of Israel, it was translated into all the languages that were available. It's considered to be a positive thing. How can a positive thing be such a tragedy? But one of the important answers to this question is, translating the Torah into another language, is that a good idea? Is it good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? Is it a good idea or not? It depends who's meant to learn it now in this translation. If the nations of the world have access to the Torah's message, and would that they did, that is a very positive thing for them. And if it needs to be translated into their language, so be it. It's a good outcome for them. The tragedy of translating the Torah into Greek is not that the Greeks would then study Torah in Greek. It's they wanted everyone to study Torah then in Greek, including the Jewish people. And what's the, and what's the first casualty uh, of such a translation Torah Shabbat Peh there is no longer any Torah Shabbat Peh because what is Torah Shabbat Peh if not an exposition of the verses <coughs> there is no concept of expounding verses which have been translated into a different language all of the nuance and all of the detail and all of the, the parameters of how Torah Shabbat Peh works can only work in Lashon HaKodesh so, so, and the non-Jews, they don't necessarily need, the nations of the world, they don't need uh, Torah Shabbat Peh. So for them, the Torah hopefully will not be lost in translation, the basic message of the written Torah. But for the Jewish people to then start learning Torah in Greek, so that's the end of Torah Shabbat Peh. And if it's the end of the Torah Shabbat Peh, it is in a sense the end of the Jewish people because they have lost their distinct connection with Hashem. Not the end, chas v'shalom, of the Jewish people, but they, they, they're forfeiting the bris Torah that connects them to Hashem. So ironically, Ptolemy's, 200 years before the Hanukkah story, or however long it was, Ptolemy's decree to translate the Torah into into Greek, and Antiochus from the north, his subsequent decree, decree against learning Torah, they actually intersect. They're one and the same. Because what they both have as their enemy is, is the Jewish people learning Torah as it was originally given to them. And achar hadvarim ha'ele. We can now come to consider one of the basic questions. I'm not sure. It depends how one asks it and what one does with it. But <coughs> certainly it is part of the, of the discourse of Hanukkah. There is no organized formulation of the, of the laws of Hanukkah in the Mishnah. It is mentioned in passing, I believe, half a dozen times. But each time as if we uh, really, 
to when do you bring Bikurim until Hanukkah? I mean, that's not Hanukkah. I mean, it's mentioned in the Mishnah. And if you cause someone's uh, house to, or something to catch fire because, because you came into contact with this fire, does it make a difference if the fire was outside because it's Hanukkah? I mean, these are references in the Mishnah. But this is not the core laws of Hanukkah. So why are there no Mishnahis? Megillah has a whole Masechta. Not that the whole Masechta deals with Megillah, but plenty does. So why is Hanukkah missing from the Mishnah? That is an age-old question. And many, many answers have been given. <clears throat> an interesting answer, perhaps, perhaps a practical answer, is given by the Chida in his Sefer Devarim Achadim. And the Chida says the reason why the laws of Hanukkah were not formulated in the Mishnah is because they had been formulated in written form earlier than the Mishnah. One of the earlier uh, works that we have before the Mishnah is called Megillas Tanis. Megillas Tanis, not as its name suggests, is our days when one is not allowed to fast because they are special days in the Jewish year. And it goes through each of them. And among them, Hanukkah. And there you will find the laws of Hanukkah in Megillas Tanis. And Megillas Tanis was written, was committed to writing before the Mishnah. And that, says the Chida, very simply, is why there is uh, no Mishnayas, because it was already in written format pre-Mishnah in this work called Megillas Tanis. Without getting into too many details, the only qualification or additional comment there is that Megillas Tanis itself is very short, and it only really mentions the days. Everything else is a commentary in Hebrew that was added later on, including, which means if you look, if you look at Megillas Tanis, it's reference to Hanukkah, it's two lines, and basically says on the 25th of Kislev, it's eight days of, start the eight days of Hanukkah, don't fast and don't give a spade. That's all it says. The, the accompanying commentary, which gives you all the halachas that we know, where should the menorah be? So there was a commentary added to Megillas Tanis, the Chida assumes that that commentary also was written prior to the Mishnah um, uh, necessarily. Otherwise, it's not enough that Megillas Tanis itself, the original work, was written before the Mishnah, that accompanying parish, which clearly goes back to antiquity, but, date, but predates the Mishnah itself. I will mention, because I can't not mention, even though it's a very, very big Chiddush, it is said in the name of the Chassam Sofer, the Chassam Sofer himself does not write this, but it is mentioned in his name it, by two separate places. It's a big Kiddush. But it's part of Hanukkah. That, as we know, Ramban is critical of the Hashmonaim for keeping on the Malchus. Because Malchus should really be ultimately in the domain of Shevet Yehuda, Lo Yosser Shevet Yehud, Mi Yehuda, and uh, as much as they needed to save the Jewish people, because no one else was doing it. And they needed to take, let's call it interim control. They should have handed it over to Yehuda at a certain point, as soon as possible, says Ramban, which they did not. Rambab does not seem to have any, any such critical view of the, of the Hashbanaim. He, 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 he seems to say that we celebrate the fact that the Malchus came back to the Kohanim. So uh, not everyone agrees with Ramban, but, but the Ramban does. And the Chassam Sofer therefore suggests that out, as, as, a, as, as a statement protecting or protesting 
the honor of his ancestors, because Rabbi Yudah Nasi is descended from Hillel. They're from the tribe of Yehuda. Therefore, he admitted the halachas of Hanukkah from the Mishnah as a protest against the Hashmonaim, uh, who were Kohanim, who held on to the Malchus that should have really belonged to, to his ancestors uh, from the tribe of Yehuda. It's a very, very big Chiddush after all. Rabbi Yudanasi's job is to is to tell us the halachas. I mean, uh, and if we don't know the halachas because, uh, because of this protest, so then the job of the Mishnah is to tell us halachas. Nonetheless, and there's a lot of discussion about this, it's a very popular or well-known, more correctly, uh, <coughs> explanation of the Hassan Sofer. I will say, a fascinating explanation, and again, in answer to this question, why are the halachas of Hanukkah not formulated in the Mishnah? It comes from one of the great the great uh, Torah scholars of the last uh, few decades, Rebuven Margolius. Rebuven Margolius, a very unusual person, wrote many, many svarim, and one of those people that just seemed to have known everything. And he has a, a, a volume called Yesod HaMishnah Varichosa, and he suggests as follows. Why is the Mishnah written when it is? Well, uh, we assume that people began to forget and, and, and it, was, it needed to be done. It needed to be com- committed to writing uh, before it would be forgotten completely. And, and that's not necessarily not the case. But Reverend Agolius argues there's another catalyst for writing down the Mishnah. And that is by the time the, uh, the Mishnah came to be written down, Rome is now very much in control of the of the Jewish people, and we know that Rome expressed an interest in Jewish law. It's, it's kind of interesting that uh, Ptolemy, representing Greece, wanted the Torah to be translated into Greek, but for, for purposes of review, there was pressure from Rome, says Ubuv Margolius, to have a written formulation of Jewish law, and that, he suggests, is the catalyst for the right, the committing of the writing uh, of the Mishnah. So, if you understand that one of the significant reasons for writing the Mishnah is in order that Rome would be able to review it, says Abubar Margolius, it's probably not that hard to understand where one of the areas of halacha that is missing and not written about in the Mishnah is the story of Hanukkah which the Roman Empire would probably not find so geschmack, because it is basically the story of religious zealots taking on the occupying empire and routing them. And this is an annual celebration where we always remember those glorious days when we routed the invaders. That's not a set of halachas that you wish to present to the current invaders. And that, says Rebuva Margolius, is why it was left, it was left uh, unwritten. It's in Torah Shabbat Peh. People still know about it, but that's not the type of thing that you want Rome to read. And he further suggests this is why other areas of halacha are likewise not really discussed in the Mishnah. Tefillin, which is a very sore point for Rome, they really saw it as a national symbol. The halachas of tefillin are not explicated in the Mishnah. The halachas of Geirus are not explicated in the Mishnah. Gairus was an epidemic at the time of Rome. As, as strange as it sounds, 
in droves the finest Roman noblemen were, were converting to Judaism because they conquered and they found that the people they conquered were far superior to, 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 their, own, to their own culture. That's why to convert to Judaism was a punishable offense by death and that's why there's no halakhus of Gerus in the Mishnayas. And this is a very, very interesting explanation of Ruben Margolius. But to come back to our discussion, or, or more correctly, to weave this back into, into what we have been discussing. If we wish to know, and this Rafutner says in the Pachat Yitzhak and Shlomo Zaman Orbach also uh, says similarly. If you wish to know why, at least as far as possible, in the Mishnah, which is the first initial committing to writing of, uh, of Halacha, Hanukkah is missing. If you want to know why that's so, says Rafutner, but just, just remember what, what Hanukkah is all about. It's about trying, fighting to preserve our special connection with Hashem. And that comes through Torah Shebaal Peh. And therefore, as far as possible, if it's, if it's in any way that the halachas of this festival should be left, should remain Torah Shebaal Peh. If everything else is written down, Hanukkah, you, you can remember. If, if you have to remember all of Shisha Sidre Mishnah, you could have a problem. But if everything else has been written down, let this remain Torah Shabal Peh. Because Torah Shabal Peh is the connection that Hanukkah is all about. And this is one of those cases where some things are better left unwritten because it preserves the quality of the unwritten nature. So these, I think, are. are, are very thought-provoking themes to contemplate as we, uh, as we head towards Hanukkah. And what it, uh, it, it is nothing less than the question of what, this, what the conflict was, was all about. What, what is it that had the, the uh, Hashmanan take up arms? What is the point of confrontation? Uh, and, and what it means for us all these years later. Let's conclude by, by referring back to to the lighting of the menorah itself, which in one form or another has become the, the center of the, of the Shia this evening. When the Gemara discusses the background to the, what we call the story of Hanukkah, and this is in Masech Shabbos and Daf Kaf Aleph, it's a quotation from that, ex, from that accompanying commentary to Megillah Tanis, this, this account. So the Gemara concludes by saying, Leshona Acheres, the following year after the Hanukkah story, Kivaum Vaasaum Yomim Tovim, Behalal Vahodah. In the subsequent year, they fixed and established it as a Yom Tov for Halal, for praise, and Hodah, for thanksgiving. And what does that mean? Well, Halal, we know. Halal is Halal. And we have the mitzvah of Halal Shalem every day of Hanukkah. So that's Halal. And what is Hoda'ah? Says Rashi, there's a special Al-Hanissim prayer that we say in the Thanksgiving sections of the Shemana Yisrei and of Benching. The Al-Hanissim is, is at Modim in Shemana Yisrei and at Nodelacha in Benching. And that's called Hoda'ah. It's very interesting <coughs> that what emerges from Rashi is that saying Al-Hanissim on Hanukkah is part of the original, it is a, it is a pillar of Hanukkah. Halal and Hoda'ah. Hoda'ah is Al-Hanissim. On every special day we mention the day in Shemona 
On Rosh Chodesh, we, we say Yale Viyavo, and, and so on and so forth. And on Purim, we say Al Anisim. But it's not the same. You should mention a special day on, on that day. But in Hanukkah, it's the fulfillment of the basic concept of Hodah. If Purim is Yimei Mishteh, V'simcha, days of feasting and rejoicing, Hanukkah is Yimei Halal V'hodah. And that's why, says Rav Hutner, the Alanisim on Hanukkah concludes by saying, V'kavu Shmonos Yimei Hanukkah Elu L'hodos Elahalal, L'shimcha Godal. It concludes by saying they established these days for Thanksgiving, which we, there is no parallel conclusion in, in Purim. Because in Purim, the Alanisim is is to remember the day. But Alanisim on Hanukkah is the primary mitzvah of Hodah. Thus far, according to Rashi, that Hodah refers to Alanisim. What's interesting is the Rambam seems to completely miss out the concept of Hodah. Because in the Mishnah Torah, in Hechaz Hanukkah, Perik Gimel, Halacha Gimel, says Rambam, Hitkinu Chachamim Shabaosu Ador. The Chachamim in that generation established, <coughs> instituted, These eight days, beginning 25th of Kislev, Yimei Simcha V'Halel, days of Halel, <coughs> and then says, we like the menorah. So he mentions Halel, and they'll go straight to the menorah, which is a, a separate thing. But where is Hodah? There is no mention of, of Rambam's Hodah or Alanisim. How did it go missing? The Gemara says Hanukkah is two things, Halel and Hodah. The Rambam mentions Halel, and, that's, and that's, a, that's the last we hear of it. So where did Hodah go? Where does Thanksgiving go? But interestingly, in this case, it could be that the question becomes the answer. Because the Mizrahi, who we, we are familiar with from his Perush on Rashi, Rebbeinu Eliyahu Mizrahi, in one of his other works, his commentary on the Smag, he approaches the whole thing from the other direction. How come no one in the Gemara talks about lighting the menorah? You'd never know. It says they, they established these eight days as days of, of, of praise and thanksgiving. And no mention of the menorah. But who brings these two questions to intersect? Is one of the later Rishonim, or one of the, not, not so late in fact, uh, Rabbeinu Yishaya Acharon from Trani in Italy. They were, he's called Acharon because his grandfather was the first Rabbi Yishaya, Rabbeinu Yishaya of, it, of Trani in Italy. And the second is Rabbi Yishaya Acharon Zal, known as the Riyaz. And the Riyaz in his commentary on, the, on this section of the Gemara explains. Again, the Gemara says they established them as days of Halel and Hoda'ah. Says the Riyaz. They established them as eight days. We say Halel. And we give, ex- we give thanksgiving for the miracle through lighting the menorah. Says the Riyaz, different than Rashi. Hoda'ah is not Alanisim. Hoda'ah is lighting the menorah. So the, light, the mitzvah of lighting the menorah is very much there. It's literally looking up at us from the Gemara. That's Hoda'ah. And in fact, with this in mind, if we go back to the Rambam, and the Rambam says again his words, are these eight days, are you may simcha v'halel? And then said, umadlikin ben haneros. 
And we initially thought that he's ignoring Hodah and moving on to lighting the Neiros. But now we see from the, from the Riyaz, Rabbeinu Yishaya Achara, no, the Rambam is not ignoring the concept of Hodah. He's defining it. Madlikan ben Asaneiros. That's the mitzvah of Hodah. And it's such a simple thing. And of course, as soon as you hear it, 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 it makes perfect sense. But more than anything else, it's to give us the atmosphere of lighting the menorah. There's many mitzvahs and we all do them and, and, and we do them as well as we can. But if there's an atmosphere that accompanies the lighting of the menorah, how do you say thank you for all of that? For everything that happened and that continues to happen? You light the menorah. It's an act of thanksgiving. And we say this in Haneris Halalu. We don't use them. Just to see them. Why? That's what the lights are for. To give, to give thanksgiving. Indeed, in the original formulation, I shouldn't say original, in one of the versions, uh, early versions of the, of the formulation of this, uh, of Haneris Halalu, it's actually said in between the two blessings on the lighting. The whole thing, and then the brach of Shasanissim, which for us sounds impossible. How, how, can you, how, how can it be? It's a hafsuk. How can you intersperse between the two blessings? Says of Shlomo Zaman Orbach, it's not a hafsuk. This is the mitzvah. It's Tzorach mitzvah. What is the mitzvah all about? And that is, if. if Sometimes actions speak louder than words. Of course, we say halal, and, and, and of course, we, we say thank you. But sometimes what you can't put into words, you put into an action. Everything, more than we could ever say about everything that's happened, goes into that, to that act of lighting. It's an act of, of, of hoda'ah, and that is why hidur mitzvah is such a prominent theme. The beautification of a mitzvah is such a prominent theme in, in, in Hanukkah, because, because when something is about saying thank you, so when you say thank you, you put, you put a bow on it. When you say thank you, so then it's not just getting the item across. You put ribbons on it. You, put, you package it nicely, because that's how, that's how you say thank you. Once a mitzvah has this thank you atmosphere to it, so then we say, how can we put ribbons on it? And that is Hidur Mitzvah. That's Mahadrin and Mahadrin Minna Mahadrin and... and, and and I think the more, especially apropos of our discussion a couple of weeks ago, the more we understand how hoda'a, to express our appreciation to Hashem for everything He's done, is something that itself opens the gateways for more to come. And it's an auspicious time to request more to come. And we are certainly at a time when we are in need of Nisim. We've been witness to Nisim. We are in need of more Nisim. And we're headed to the time of Nisim. And if there's any way to activate that flow, it, comes, it starts by saying thank you. And so the more we're able to inject the atmosphere for, for, for the past and that which accompanies us, 
the more we can add our prayer, silent or otherwise, for that which we still hope to come. And we should have Basuras Tovos. And what began in Chanukah should be concluded, as we say, as egmor b'shir mizmor, Chanukah samizbeach. If we look forward to the conclusion, it means we're talking about something that's already started. It has started. Chanukah began that process. We are at stages in that process. We look forward to its exposition, expedition and culmination as we all return and besimchas olam, I wish you all a lichtige Hanukkah. And just to mention, I forgot to mention at the beginning of the year, there will be no year uh, next week. We'll take a break for Hanukkah. We'll meet again in Mitzvah Shem in two Mondays' time, the Monday of Parshas Vayigash. We should only hear Besaros Tovos, Yeshuas, Venechamos. All the very best.